Turns out it's haunted. The podcast covering haunted locations and spooky stories. We're your hosts, Tracy and Laura. Hi, Scary Cats. Hi, Scary Cats. We're back again. Hi, Laura. Hi, Tracy. We're going a bit crazy with this Zoom stuff. <laughs> we are, and I'm so delirious after meetings after meetings at night time and I need sleep and food that is not sugar and Laura's <laughs> delirious too. And today's episode is what, Laura? It's Mount Everest. We're doing Mount Everest because I couldn't, I had to do research finally for one sort of episode and I wasn't going to look at research for freaky deaky things. And I got thinking about Mount Everest and um, all the people that have died there and how people, dead people are still there because it's too hard to get them off the mountain. So I did lots of research and so... We're just going to, I'm going to present it to you and you're going to give me your thoughts as we go along. Mount us up, Laura. Mount us. Are you ready for mounting? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Oh, dear. (laughs) It is just COVID crazy times. So welcome. You're welcome, listeners. (laughs) Anyway. All right. So we're going to do a bit of, you know, geography and history and religion, culture. All of that, okay? So this has everything. And as Tracy is doing all kinds of funny things to distract me in the video section, I wish we could post the video section. You guys are really missing out. I'm so sorry. I feel bad now. That's cruel. Don't feel bad. It's great. This is is a treat for me. I'm enjoying it. (laughs) Our listeners can't see and I feel like it it would piss me off if I couldn't see what we were laughing at. I could be very descriptive right now, but. I digress. Ready for mounting. Mountains, Laura, mountains. All right. Okay. We're ready for so, mounting. Here goes. And I will, actually, before I just start, I will post all my references onto the end of the show notes because there's a good A4 page full of references where I got information from, ranging from Wikipedia to Encyclopedia Britannica, uh, first-hand accounts. Did you have, did you have a Funk and Wagnalls? Uh yes. <laughs> we had well Matt did. Matt had editions. He had oh no, it wasn't encyclopedias. We've still got them. They're Matt's like original ones, but it was dictionaries and it was in two volumes. And Luce, when she was tiny, used to carry them around. She was obsessed with these. And they're like old school with the gold lettering and mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. I remember when we got them when we were young, when I was young and Obviously, Encyclopedia Britannica was the rich people's version and Funk and Wagnalls was the not rich people's version, but it was still quite valuable. And I remember my parents buying a TV cabinet and it was one of those ones where it's got like the TV in the middle of the drawer underneath and the glass cabinets either side and then like you kind of put things on top. Yeah. And I remember them proudly displaying when we got the Funk and Wagnall Encyclopedia inside the glass cabinet and it was like, it was a pride thing to be able to display your encyclopedia collection. Absolutely. You used and to I win. just couldn't stop laughing about Hunk and Wagnall. <laughs> that is funny. the best name ever. <laughs> it just reminds me of Sale of the Century. Oh. Did you ever did watch that? on there? Yeah, it was one of the prizes and it was quite often, like I remember speaking of voiceovers before we started recording, we were speaking about voiceovers, but the, the announcer on Sale of the Century always had a really... Mm. Like it just takes me right back there. Encyclopedia Britannica is the way he said it as a prize. Anyhow. Anyway, back to Everest. Everest. Back to being mounted by Laura. Here we go. Okay. So towering at 8,848 metres above sea level, Mount Everest is Earth's highest land point. Its summit runs between the border of Nepal in the south and Tibet, China in the north. It formed around 50 million years ago as the Indian tectonic plate collided into the Eurasian plate. 
uh, this is a process that's still going on. So it still actually grows higher, a tiny amount every year. So the name Mount Everest was officially adopted by the Royal Geographical Society in 1865 after Sir George Everest, who was a former surveyor general of India. Despite Sir George himself opposing the adoption of his name, it is interesting also to note that the common pronunciation Everest is not even how he pronounced his own surname, which sounded more like Everest. Um, mm because he he lived in India for a long time and he obviously um, respected the, you know, the local language and culture and obviously they have their own names for Mount Everest, um, which we'll get into, but he was, he never liked the idea of having that mountain named after him because he he didn't uh, he didn't think that was very respectful at all. And even the fact that the people that lived there whose land it was on couldn't even pronounce Everest. So it's interesting. Wow. Yeah. Um, so um, there's a couple of more common names, and which is one of the reasons why um, pe- some people felt as though they had to rename it was because there's numerous names um, that the local people uh, referred to Mount Everest as, but the two most common ones are Sagamatha, meaning goddess of the sky, and that's by the Nepalese people in the south, and Chomolungma, which means goddess mother of the earth, by the Tibetans. So many Sherpas believe that the summit of Chomolungma is home to the Buddhist goddess, I'm going to really crucify this, I'm so sorry, um, Mio Lang Sangma. So that's say it again. No, <laughs> you do. <laughs> <laughs> but that's interesting. So there, um, so Choma Lungma and Sagamatha is what more the locals on either side of the border, um, Hindu and Buddhist, would refer to that mountain as. Um, ah. But for the purpose of this podcast, I'll probably be saying Everest just because I don't oh, think. Please do Choma Lungma, whatever it was. Choma Lungma. Choma I'm probably not even saying that right too, to be honest, but I really want to acknowledge that, you know, we can't yes, just I take like everything over and bloody rename things just because we think we we conquered or we uh, mm-hmm. first saw it, discovered it. Anyhow, so the Himalayan mountains have long been home to Indigenous groups living in the valleys. The most famous of these are the Sherpa people. The word Sherpa is often used to mean mountain guide, though it actually refers to an ethnic group who moved to the Everest region over 500 years ago. Not all Nepalese or Tibetan people are Sherpas. Nepal has a population of around 20 million with more than 50 distinct ethnic groups. There are only around 20,000 Sherpas in Nepal. The Sherpa have valuable experience in mountain climbing, which they can provide to other climbers. Most climbs of Everest would be impossible without the Sherpa's logistical help and knowledge. However, their way of life extends beyond helping Everest climbers. Traditionally, their lifestyle has consisted of farming, herding and trade. And because they live at such a high altitude year-round, they are accustomed to the low oxygen levels. Okay, so they live a long time there too, don't they? Oh gosh, that is something I did not research the the average age, but um, I don't know. Why not? Sure, <laughs> if it's coming from you, anything you say, I'm like, yeah, sure, must do. But I don't know. You tell me. Please don't do that. <laughs> All right, I won't do that. Um, or no, that is a lie because sometimes I'm like bullshit. Anyway, okay, yeah. So most. Sherpas are Tibetan Buddhist, although some are Hindu. In either religion, if a body doesn't receive its final rites by way of funeral service, the soul will not be able to reincarnate. Therefore, it has become a massive point of concern for Sherpa bodies to be left behind on the mountain. They believe in the existence of the spirits of the dead and feel the need to perform death rituals. Um where juniper fires burn, prayers are chanted, rice is thrown, and celestial signs have to be right. Um, what, and during what has to be right? The celestial signs. So I guess the planets oh, have yep. to align and all of that sort of stuff. Yeah. Um, 
it's also interesting. I came across a little fact there that during um, climbing season, uh, when they see visiting comets, that's not a great sign. Oh, which is why? interesting. I'm not sure why. I couldn't really find out why. And that might not even be true because I only found sort of that fact once. You're just so. pulling that out of your ass. Well, someone's ass, <laughs> not even mine. <laughs> but I thought that was interesting and I couldn't. I couldn't find any more on that. But if anyone knows, that would be interesting to find out. Anyhow, so for the Sherpa community, the mountain is not just a mass of rock, but a deity to be revered and cared for. They worship and have deep respect for the mountain. They have many gods, goddesses and demons and believe that these deities inhabit the nearby mountains, caves and forests. Sherpas speak their own language and have their own customs and unique way of life. Sherpa people will not climb Mount Everest without first participating in the puja ceremony, during which they ask for permission from the gods to climb the mountain and for safety and protection while doing so. Many rituals are performed throughout the ceremony and the entire climbing team participates in the sacred rituals and ceremonies that the Sherpa perform for themselves, for the goddess of the mountain and for the climbers on their way to her summit. The surrounding valleys permeate spiritual energy that is attested to by all the native Sherpas living near the mountain. In its Indigenous context, the summit of Mount Everest is a heavenly place that humans should revere in awe at its base, envisaging the gods dancing above. Oh, that's cute. I like that. It's lesser known, but I, I liked it too. All right. You know so, what, though? Like, who, like, if you think about it, you would assume that, like, people of native places have their native stories and lore and yeah and I feel as though that's just really scraping the surface that's just what little old me could look into and find but I'd love to you know dig into more folklore and that sort of thing um it's all out there there's a couple of uh Netflix um docos as well that I'll link to in the show notes which is which are fascinating all right, so we'll go to some of the more sort of common westernised history of the summits and the attempts to summit. So in 1921, a British expedition explored the eastern and northern surroundings of the mountain. At the time, Everest could not be attempted from the south out of Nepal as the country was closed to western foreigners. During this expedition, George Mallory identified a route from the northern side out of Tibet, which, according to to his opinion, would allow attempt, an attempt on the summit. So they returned the following year with an entire expedition again with the, intention of, with the intention of making the first ascent of Everest and also the first attempt using bottled oxygen. However, after two unsuccessful summit attempts, the expedition finally ended on the third attempt when seven porters died as the result of a group-induced avalanche, making this the first reported climbing deaths on Mount Everest, as we know. Uh, so two years later, in 1924, George Mallory returns again with uh, probably another you know, lots of expedition men, but the other recorded name I have here is Andrew Sandy Irvine. Um, they're both quite well-known in the mountaineering Everest community because they made an attempt on the summit from which they never returned. Um, and 75 years later, they uh, George Mallory's body was found um, by an expedition that set out especially to find him. Um and they recorded that and they found his body um, exactly how he was. He had had a big slip and a fall. Um, and they were hoping to recover his body with some evidence that they had actually made it to the summit. They had an eyewitness um, from somebody else that they were very close to the summit but no evidence that they were the first people up there. But lots of people believe that they actually were the first people up there, although it can't be substantiated by any evidence. Um, and Andrew Sandy Irvine's body has never been found to this date. Wow. Yeah, so that was in 1924 and it wasn't until 1953 that we have the first actual documented people that did make it successfully to the summit and survive 
on the whole way down. Um, like if you think about it, like now, like people will go and do Everest and they they undergo such radical preparation to go to Everest. Yeah. And back then it's just like, hey, that's a pretty fucking cool mountain. Let's climb it. And they're just like, yeah, let's climb a mountain. It's like I know it wouldn't have been that simple, but they wouldn't have had the things that we have, have today. They would not. Even their, their clothing and stuff, like when they found George Mallory, uh, they knew it was him because they looked at the tags on his clothing and it had his name written on the tags on the back and they couldn't actually, they didn't actually believe it was him until they, they thought it was actually Sandy Irvine, but until they saw numerous tags with his initials on it. But even obviously the clothes that he was wearing and the boots that he was wearing, they knew it was a really old um, body that they'd found because it was cotton and it was wool. It wasn't Gore-Tex and it wasn't all the nylon stuff um, of all the other bodies that you see out there. So they knew it was really, really someone that had been there a long time. Wow. Yeah, I know. It's fascinating. And actually there's loads more information on um, on the actual condition that they found his body in and how they were able to surmise how he actually fell and what had happened because he had a rope wrapped around him. And again, even the rope was an old rope and it had clearly snapped. So it looked like um, he was really injured after his fall and he had, you know, he was clawing at at the rock and um, the rope was wrapped around his his lungs and waist and he had a big contusion on his head um, and he also had um, one of, I think it was his right leg, his tibia and fibula were broken right above the top of his boot. So he had a really heinous death. He, he fell a long way and this was after planning this for, you know, three years. This was at least his third documented visit there. Um, he worked out the route, he went back again and he tried again when Seven died and then this was the third time that, that you know, that I could find that he actually, he might have got there, who knows, and I guess that's why there's so much fascination um, about this because did he, didn't he? He was obviously very passionate about this um, and, and he's still there. <laughs> well, hopefully he froze to death quickly and so it wasn't so painful. I think. Like how quick would yeah. you freeze to death? very quickly up there. But I think he mm. might have died from what I read. Um, I think the the hit to his head is what he died from and everything else. But I don't know. Uh, okay. I don't know. It's hard. It's hard sort of to know because he had a lot of injuries. But he was really well preserved, obviously, because he was frozen. So it's just we'll get into the conditions on the mountain and how people sort of are there for so long, but eventually they sort of wear away or, or move along. Um yeah, so the title of the first successful summit was obtained by Sherpa Tenzing Norgay and New Zealander Edmund Hillary, who became the first men to stand on its summit in 1953. Norgay actually worked as a porter and a guide for more than 18 years before the successful expedition. That trek called the British Everest Expedition began as a group of 400 people and slowly whittled away to just Hillary and Norgay. With Tenzing Norgay, the Sherpas suddenly had an international face and reputation as being the best of the best for Himalayan mountaineering. Following the summit, Edmund Hillary received a knighthood, while Sherpa Tenzing Norgay received an honorary medal. The Hillary Norgay Summit in 1953 inspired many tourists to visit the area and its surrounds. The mountain has since been summited more than 7,000 times by more than 4,000 people who have left a trail of garbage, human waste, and bodies in their wake. So, That's how just so sad. It is really sad. And even looking at the sort of reasons and um, lure as to why people wanted to summit back then and why people want to summit these days. Um, I guess people are always going to have different reasons for wanting to do it. But back then it was more about, you know, expeditions and, and uh, you know, discovery. And these days it's almost um, seen as we've well, got to have a certain amount of wealth in order to do it, to get your summit ticket and whatnot and, um, and not necessarily be as healthy or a mountaineer person in general. So people just want to conquer and want that photo. And, and we see people every year 
stuck in lines now, which I'll get into too, but it's it's quite sad. Yeah. You kind of wonder how many people do it for self, um, you know, self-conquering and self-reasons yeah. more than uh, spiritual or environmental reasons. It's so Something different. outside of them. Isn't mm. it? Yeah, it's huge. It's fascinating. So the more I researched, the more my mind was just like, whoa, crazy. Um, but, yeah, there's there's a lot of people that die trying. And uh, and I was looking into why that was. Obviously, there's high altitudes and it's really dangerous. Um, so that's obviously why they die. Um, and so far, according to Wikipedia, there's 308 people um, that have died trying and one-third of those are Sherpas mostly from, you know, trying to help other people and lead tours and whatnot. Mm. Um, and high-altitude-related illnesses, um, there's sort of two types of those. There's cerebral edema. So when your brain doesn't get enough oxygen, it starts to swell. And that's cerebral edema. So obviously you can die of that. And high-altitude high pulmonary edema. So when your lungs are swelling and full of fluid as well. Um, 68 have died in avalanches, um, hypothermia, so plenty of people freeze to death up there. Um, people run out of oxygen, um, so their, their oxygen tanks are empty and then they just are hypoxic and die, which also leads to the other issue of loads of empty oxygen canisters just being littered up there, just being left behind. Um, and mm. falling, 67 people slip and fall and um, a lot simply can't be safely retrieved and transported back. Um, so in 2019, many climbers perished partly as a result of using up their oxygen and waiting in queues, which is a big thing now why people are dying because of the queues. This was the busiest year on record, seeing over 820 people on the mountain with more than 200 making the final attempt from camp floor up to the summit. Mm. There are thought to be between 200 and 300 bodies left up on Mount Everest. There is quite a few dead bodies in various places along the normal Everest routes. Some have been there for years, some appear only after weather changes and snow deposits move and some bodies may only be days old. No one is entirely sure how many or exactly where many of these bodies are because of the horrific and unrelenting conditions. That means two-thirds of, of the people that died on Everest are still there. Some bodies have blown over edges, slid down rock faces or snowbanks and are in areas that have never been seen or walked on. Often the location of the body can make retrieval almost impossible or would take too long to get out under compacted snow and ice. A dead body that normally weighs around 80 kilos might weigh 150 kilos when frozen and dug out with the surrounding ice attached. So it's it's impossible. It's really, really yeah. impossible for many reasons. Um, and bringing back a body requires coordination from a team with very good conditions and can cost upwards from $40,000 to $80,000 US. Jesus. Yeah. Instead of bringing the bodies back down, it is common to either move them out of sight or push them over the side of the mountain. Some climbers specifically wanted their bodies to be left on the mountain if they died, much like seafarers dying at sea and requesting to be buried at sea. Remains are usually hmm. committed to the mountain. That is, they are respectfully pushed into a crevice or off a steep slope out of sight. When possible, they might also be covered with rocks forming a burial mound. But with more and more people stepping over dead bodies every year, this presents some problems. When a body does become a well-photographed fixture of the mountain, their families are often the ones who suffer the most. Can you imagine mm. that? You have a relative passed away up there and some tourists just sitting by taking a photo with it. It's nuts. No. So no. there's a few specific areas notorious on the mountain to where people will die, um, and one of them is often called the death zone. 
or Everest Graveyard or Rainbow Valley. It's all the same place. Um, so it's the area of very different names. Yeah, for different reasons. Well, the death zone refers to the zone above 8,000 metres of elevation because from that point onwards, there's a massive, massive drop in available oxygen in the atmosphere. So uh, I think it's about a quarter. I'll get into it. I'll read it in a sec. But, yeah, it's much less than what we're used to at sea level. Um, So that's what the death zone part of it is. And Everest Graveyard, you know, sort of speaks for itself. It's where a lot of the bodies are. And Rainbow Valley, you'll find out in a sec too. So above 8,000 metres of elevation, climbers find themselves in the death zone where their brains and lungs are starved for oxygen. Their risk of heart attack and stroke is increased and their judgment quickly becomes impaired. The higher you go up the mountain, the less oxygen is available to you because of less air pressure. At sea level, around 20% of the air we breathe is made up of oxygen. Above around 8,000 metres, it drops under 8%. This is not enough oxygen to feed the body. This is called the death zone because at this height, the body is actively dying of hypoxia. Oxygen deficiency causes the lungs to work overtime, increases the heart rate, and eventually thickens the blood. Eyesight becomes blurry with headaches, nausea, and dizziness almost guaranteed. Many climbers that reach 7,500 metres experience hallucinations on their journey. So even less than that is obviously still really dangerous. Mm. Um, Altitude sickness occurs when moving to higher altitudes and requires acclimatisation in steps to combat. It includes loss of brain function and confusion as well as vomiting. Sometimes at this point, climbers suffer from extreme confusion and start to remove their clothes. Gloves are commonly thrown off and sometimes climbers expose their skin to the weather. They seem to experience heat from the cold, creating a burning sensation. Without supplemental oxygen, it is almost impossible to survive for long. Though it can be done, people have climbed and summited Everest without supplemental oxygen. It's much more risky and much less people will ever be successful doing it. Um, Yeah. This area has also become known as the Everest Graveyard for the amount of bodies littered around the area. It is also known as Rainbow Valley for the brightly coloured mountaineering suits of the bodies. It should be noted here that there are a couple of Sherpa-led groups that do do a lot of cleaning up of bodies and waste, um, especially from this section, and it has been improved somewhat since uh, 2014. They really decided from then onwards they had to sort of address the build-up of the bodies. Mm. Another area is called the Kumbu Icefall, which is not far off the base camp. It's one of the most dangerous parts of attempting Everest and has claimed many lives from avalanche. Uh, Though it's only a short trek from base camp, the ever-changing icefall is very different to much of the rest of the journey. The icefall is a large section of hard frozen ice blocks that are topped in snow. A fall or slip can leave people trapped between or under the heavy ice. Any avalanche or snow movement from further up the mountain leads to more broken ice and snow cascading down this section. So that's when there's an avalanche and there's a big mass of people dying all at once. That's that's where it's coming down and sort of annihilating big camps of people all at once. So yeah. Like imagine like if you woke up for a second and it's like, what the fuck is that noise? And then you're gone. Imminent. Like How? if you're asleep. Yeah. 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 So scary. Um, and more, you know, more and more in recent years, cues have been pointed to as a major reason for deaths. After passing mm. the Kumbu Icefall, many of the standard routes are done with the aid of fixed lines. This is a rope that has been anchored in place by Sherpas ahead of the client, the paid client's attempts. Climbers clip themselves onto the rope with a juma or hand ascender. These are handheld devices that can be pulled up the rope but won't go back down. It's basically a way of hauling your body up with a rope. On steeper sections, two hand ascenders are used at the same time. The problem is that climbers and guiding companies tend to climb on the same days. Weather windows might last two or three days at a maximum over an entire year, so the first good day is jumped on. This leads to long queues as everyone goes as slow as the slowest front runner. So I don't know if you've seen or heard about anything about Everest in recent years, but recently on social media there's pictures of mountain peaks along there where there's just people lining, just standing there all in one long line. 
At some points, like crossing cracks in the ice with ladders or on thin ridges, it's impossible for more than one person to climb at a time. This leads to people standing still, losing body heat, using up oxygen and becoming exhausted from lack of oxygen to the brain. With the astronomical cost of permits to summit Everest, those climbing are increasingly skewed towards those with the money to do so rather than those who hold pure intentions and sufficient experience. Every year, there are now masses of non-native tourists hiring Sherpas to guide them to the covetous summit. For the most part, their intent is not to respect and experience the sanctity of the mountain, but rather to stand atop it or conquer it without consideration of its authentic nature. Permits to climb the mountain are purchased from upwards of $10,000 each. Although the Nepalese government... Like $10,000 Nepalese dollars? uh, I don't think it's Nepalese dollars. No. No. Like US or something or like European euros? I think it's US dollars. even Asian. Yeah, a lot of this was US sort of stuff. Um, yeah, so although the Nepalese government continues to re- receive sharp criticism, their own people are making an income off Westerners attempting Everest. It is a hazardous living, but it is one of the more stable sources of income for the Sherpas. So it's really hard. Oh, for sure. Like, yeah. Um, and the, the, the government. Yeah, yeah. And the government in recent years has come under fire by the Sherpas themselves. Um, because it's a very dangerous job um, and a lot of them are dying and then their families are really um, suffering through loss of income and whatnot. So there is enforced sort of life insurance that they get, their families get paid out now where it never used to be. I think that's only in the last 10 years or so. It was a massive, massive thing. That's what one of the Netflix um, documentaries that I watched is all about, um, sort of focused on, really highlights the difference between the Westerners who own these companies and then the natives there who are working for them. It's it's an interesting dynamic. Um, so there's a few famous bodies that, that are along there and have been there for a while, so I thought I'd just mention them. Um, the first one is known as Green Boots, um, and they're pretty sure that the identity is Selwing Paylor, but they're not 100% sure that that's his name, but he's referred to as Green Boots um, because of the colour of the boots that he was wearing when he died. And no shit. He's not, yeah, and he's not there anymore. They He disappeared around 2014. They think that someone finally removed him and, and gave him one of those rock burials or pushed him off, you know, off a surface to avoid people doing what they do and pose for photos with him and whatnot. But he really did just look like someone that had fallen over and was lying on his side. There's photos everywhere on the internet, of course, but um, he was he's found at or was found at 8,500 metres high and sheltered from the wind in a little cave. It's, they still call it Green, Green Boots Cave. Um, it's a popular resting point for climbers on their way back from the summit and signposted by his body, or used to be. Nicknamed after the colour of his boots, he was an Indian climber who attempted the summit with a team in 1996. He was caught up in part of the Everest disaster, which saw eight climbers dying on the mountain. Passing climbers used to even stop and pose for a morbid photo with the frozen body. Um, And there was a little bit of footage I found that his brother found out that he was called Green Boots and saw these photos and that the the mum was mortified when the brother told him that this is what has happened. Um, There's another climber called David Sharp who also used this cave So the cave was also where American climber David Sharp would perish. In 2006, Sharp was on a solo trek without a group, Sherpa or radio. It is believed he had descended after a possible successful summit and on coming back down took shelter in the cave near the body. Some groups on making their own ascent didn't see him. One group did see him on their ascent thinking he was just resting, but on their descent they found him still alive in the cave, hypothermic, without oxygen and suffering from frostbite and frozen limbs. Another team also found him on their descent. In the state he was in, he was unable to speak or stand. Multiple teams tried to rouse him and help him but were unable to. A stronger team of Sherpas tried to help and were able to get him to speak some words. However, he wasn't able to stand and rescue was impossible. 
So he was found sort of crouched with his arms around his knees right beside Green Boots, frozen. Henny Law Schmatz in 1979, Henny Law and her husband Gerard, both very experienced mountaineers, travelled to Everest to attempt a summit. On the final push, they split into two groups, with Gerard's leading first and returning successfully to Camp 3. Henny Law's group went second, though Gerard had warned them off after seeing the terrible weather conditions. Their group with Henny Law did reach the summit but got into trouble coming back down. Henny Law and another climber, Ray Gannett were exhausted and wanted to stop and take a shelter. Despite the Sherpa's warning that this would be fatal, they did make a small bivouac. Ray didn't survive the stop and died in the night. The rest of the group continued down from here and along the way, Henelaw succumbed to exhaustion sitting and asking for water, which is deadly. The second, the second that you stop moving, you're a goner because it takes so much oxygen to even stand and after they're so exhausted after all of that the second you stop there's no way you're gonna keep moving um, one of the sherpas stayed to try and help and suffered frostbite as a result losing most of his toes and a finger henny lord died on the upper slopes of everest at around 8300 meters only 100 meters or so from Camp 4. Her body remained on Everest for years, propped up on her backpack. She was sort of like, just looked like she was resting back and her hair blowing in the wind. And it served as a very very grim reminder of what could go wrong. For a long time, her hair would still blow around in the wind. Gosh, I've read this so much. Yeah. I'm going to agree about that. Some climbers mistook her clothing for a tent and would approach only seeing the reality at the last minute. Um, Over the years, the wind and exposure stripped the body to the skull. In 1984, two members of the Nepalese police expedition died while trying to retrieve her body. The body may have been pushed over the side of the North Cow by strong winds, but but might also still be buried there under the snow. So next lady is Shriya Shan Kolfine. She was a 33-year-old Canadian woman who who was born in Nepal but moved to Canada. In 2012, she made the summit successfully but didn't manage the um, descent. She took pictures and videos at the summit and they're still visible everywhere but spent 25 minutes there using up too much oxygen. On returning from the summit, she succumbed to exhaustion, having been climbing for over 17 hours. She died in the area known as Death Valley at over 8,000 metres and her body was draped there with a Canadian flag. And they later, someone later returned and actually choppered her out years later though. Um, and it's her death is interesting because um, there's so much footage, it be, like it was very public and a bit more recent, so it got a, a lot more attention and... Um, and it's sort of been the start of people being more aware that this is a problem that we, we're creating and that we need to sort of do stuff about. Um, and this is George Mallory. We've already talked about George Mallory, so I can just really skip over him. But it's interesting that um, the mountaineer Conrad Anker found Hillary, finally found Hillary's body after 75 years m- missing. Um, but he set out on an expedition after being really intrigued in the story, like did he summit, didn't he summit, where's the evidence? He was a history buff and mountaineering buff and an Everest buff and he uh, decided, like he looked at the photographic evidence they had of the expedition and the routes that they had planned because it was very well documented. He, George Mallory, did put a lot of planning into place so he went over all these historical plans and he pinpointed where he thought Mallory's body was and he went there with a, a group, um, made a documentary and found him. So it was incredible. Wow. But they still, like I said before, they still didn't have enough evidence to say that he did summit it um, with Sandy Irvine, but they pretty much think that he did. They just can't. It's not substantial. Give it to him for God's sake. I know, right? Yes, <laughs> let's award that. Anyway, so... Francis and Sergei Ascentiv, um, Francis's body became known as Sleeping Beauty because of her waxy-like appearance in death. She was snow white and with long dark Aww. hair. 
1998, they set out to become, Frances set out to become the first American woman to summit Everest without bottled oxygen. She achieved the incredible feat along with her husband, Sergei. Without supplemental oxygen, however, their ascent took longer and by the time they'd started back down, the weather had turned. On their, on their night descent towards Camp 6, Sergei had lost sight of Frances. When he got to camp, she wasn't there, so he made an attempt to go back up and find her, taking oxygen, where he slipped and fell to his death. A team from Uzbekistan were attempting a summit and found Frances still alive but suffering frostbite only a few hundred metres from the summit. They attempted to help her down, giving her a new tank of oxygen. However, she wasn't able to stand. They attached a rope to her and tried pulling her down the slope but had to abandon her to save themselves and go down, abandoning their own attempt. On their way back, they saw Sergei going up to find her, so it was after that that he fell, but no one saw him fall. They just He never returned and they never found his body. Imagine, like, because it would be so lonely. Yeah. Yeah, it would be quick, which would which would be the grace yeah. in it, but it would yeah. be so lonely. Yeah, yeah, and quiet. Yeah, and there's two climbers, Kathy O'Dowd and Ian Woodall, were making a summit attempt the next day when they also found Frances still alive. They had previously shared tea and talked with her and Sergey at base camp, and they were shocked. From Kathy's account, the oxygen had run out and the whole rope was still attached but it looked like Frances had removed her gloves and pulled up her sleeves. Remember before how we were discussing they feel like they're burning? Mm. Yeah. So that's what happened to her. And um, I'm pretty sure it is Ian Woodall that um, was sort of haunted by not being able to help her and not being able to save her. And he actually went back, um, went back and pushed her away and and off the ridge so she was no longer a, a, a tourist attraction in herself. Yeah, mm. is, that's beautiful. So there's some more of the famous bodies that um, we're not going to post them on Instagram but um, I, I looked at them and it was in, you know, it's insane to know that they're there. Yeah. Ooh. It's morbid. It's this sort of yeah. morbid curiosity. And yeah. and there are lots of climbers' um, recounts of, of getting to the summit, but, you know, it takes so much effort. So to even walk like 50 metres takes an hour at that height. And obviously it's not a flat line. You're on a mountain. But what possess you? Like what kind of a person are you I think to, compulsion to want almost. to do that? This, this is what yeah. gets me int- intrigued because a lot of people are return visitors. They just have to keep going back. There's it some, them. It's interesting. Um, mm. But, yeah, so right up at the summit, you know, on that line, when people stop and rest, they're quite often leaning on a corpse. They're leaning, sitting oh on a body. Yeah. it's If you climb Mount Everest, you will come across many, many dead bodies. It's just. And maybe even your own. Yep. If you, if you so come across haunted. your own dead body, that would be a whole other episode, I reckon. Is so. All haunted. these dead people haunting. I, well, the... this is this is my thing. It has to be. Um, so ghosts and paranormal. Given this macabre climate, it's inevitable that some weird stories have emerged. Some of these spooky tales are informed by the mountain's cultural and spiritual significance, and some can be explained by science, while others remain inexplicable. The Sherpas, without whose help so many ascents of Himalayan mountains would be impossible, view the Himalayas as both the embodiment and the realm of gods. Some feel that disrespect for their sacred mountain has led to both bad karma and to restless spirits. In May 2004, Pemba Doridge Sherpa was climbing Everest, a trip during which he earned a disputed claim to the world's fastest ascent when he... so. He made a very fast ascent, and if people care about records, some people are saying it was the fastest, it wasn't the fastest. He doesn't really care. Anyway, 
Um, he says that during this, uh, the shape, he saw shapes that were the ghosts of climbers who had died on the mountain and that as the shapes approached him, they held out their hands begging for something to eat. Pemba and other Sherpas oh, believe, mm, believe that ghosts will continue to haunt the mountain until a proper funeral rite can be performed for their souls. Mm. Low oxygen and other physical stresses can also account for a common phenomenon in which mountaineers report the sense of an additional phantom person. In September 1975, British mountaineers Dougal Haston and Doug Scott were forced to spend a night in the death zone after reaching Everest Summit late in the day. They dug a snow hole and huddled in for the night, unsure if they would survive until morning. They soon ran out of oxygen. With no food and their butane heater nearing depletion, their situation was truly dire. Then the inexplicable happened. Both climbers reported feeling another presence in the snow cave with them, one which not only shared its vital body heat but also offered advice and suggestions to help the climbers stay warm and alive. Other Everest climbers such as Peter Hillary, Lincoln Hill and Rayhold Messenger, to name a few, have reported a similar presence having come to their aid on the mountain in their time of need. Some go so far as to say it's the ghost of George Mallory. Is Which sounds beautiful. Boots, hey? Is that Green Boots? George Mallory was the 1920, like the one of the initial explorers. The oh, one that died. Okay. Died the one that died trying. Well, they all died trying. Like an explorer's heart. Yeah. The spirit of an explorer. Mm. Trying to guide them the way. Yeah. Um, and in 1933, while on his first attempt at Everest Summit, English climber Frank Smythe was alone at 8,565 metres on Everest North Ridge when he witnessed, and this is all in italics, so obviously his own words. Two, years as well. Yeah. <laughs> two curious objects floating in the sky. This one's really weird. They strongly resembled kite balloons in shape but one possessed what appeared to be squat, underdeveloped wings and the other a protuberance suggestive of a beak. They hovered motionless but seemed slowly to pulsate, a pulsation incidentally much slower than my own heart beats. Wow, that's interesting. Paranormally or maybe hypoxic, I don't know. Um, Maybe. Maybe. It's hard to tell up there anything goes, right? It could um, also be weather. Yeah. There are a lot of crazy weather things that happen up there because um, of the altitude. So uh, up there, lightning tends to go from cloud to cloud as opposed to cloud to ground. Yeah. And so because of that, it creates lots of light effects, like light anomalies. Sure. And so, you know, with, with hypoxia yeah. uh, mixed with, you know, yeah. Bizarre light, like it could be a whole combination of stuff. Couldn't it? Yeah, it's nuts. Um, before this, Smythe claimed to have been visited by some unidentifiable force during his ascent and felt a strong presence beside him as he moved up the slopes. He even took a slice of Kendall mint cake from his pocket to share with his companion, believing <laughs> this person to be entirely real. Real. Mm. Wow. Yep. And then there's a little bit about the Yeti. So in 1951, a British explorer named Eric Shipton, looking for an alternative route up Mount Everest, found a footprint that appeared to be hominoid. He took a picture and the mystery of the Yeti, a Sherpa word for wild man, cast a spell over the world. Shipton was one of the most highly respected Everest explorers, So if he is bringing back a print, it is a real print. Nobody ever questioned that. But what is it? So there's been lots of studies um, and they think it's a bear. They think it's some sort of evolved bear, but still no conclusive evidence. Um, Mm -hmm. Many of the earliest recorded sightings of the Yeti derive from the Everest region with the folklore of local Nepali and Tibetan tribes telling of a bipedal nocturnal creature living in their midst. There's even reports of a Yeti scalp contained in Kum Jung's monastery on Everest's south side. Ew. So that could be cool to go visit. No. 
um yeah and if you do go to Everest you'll find um the Buddhist flags everywhere you know all those different oh, wow. flags. Yeah, yeah. so it's going to read out a little bit of information on them to finish off with if you will hey before you do that yes. did you in your in your um research did you come across the story about the oh, this is something that I feel like I heard at some point from probably Funk and Wagnalls or something like that I don't know. but um <laughs> go on <laughs> I feel like it's there and I'm sure it's Mount Everest so I'm either going to make a real fool of myself right now or but I think I'm 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 on it it. so there was this story about this man who um died and he was he died alone and and he like died on Everest obviously and he appeared to some um people that were climbing and he appeared to them in their dream and he showed them where he was and so the next that like the next following days they tried to find it and they found his body and then they brought him home. But um, he's also appeared, since that happened, he appeared um, on a horse or something or a pony or a donkey or something. Like he he appears on, I'm sure it's like a, a mule or something like that. A they yak. have them over there, right? Probably a yak. A yak. Yeah. Okay, yeah, something like that. Like he appeared on, on the back of a yak and um, would – guides like um I have not uh, climbers yeah and so um he's I just remember I think it's because I remember thinking wow like a a spirit horse like a spirit yak or donkey or whatever (laughs) with like that's a lot like imagine if you saw that um but yeah so that's that's pretty cool yeah oh I'm sure there's many many stories imagine but people aren't surviving to share them. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. They're becoming their and, own myth and legend. And so many people, I reckon, would be so sceptical that they would feel like if they came down and reported what they experienced that they would be thought of as nut jobs or that it would be put down to hallucinations and no one would oh, believe yeah. you. And Absolutely. Because they probably yeah. don't believe themselves. Like there would be such an inner conflict and dilemma as to did that really happen or is it a product of the circumstance and the environment You'd yeah. be questioning yourself. Even if you were so convinced that it had happened, you'd still be like, yeah, but there is that scientific argument that it could totally have just been the environment. Yeah, you could explain it away. But also mm. sensory perception, um, when you are mm. hypoxic, aside from the hallucinations, you might not even be aware of all the stuff that's going on or, or lack the ability to remember it. Yeah, because is it's that actually quite... before, yeah. It's quite uncommon for, um, well, in high altitude areas, um, there is typically a lot of wind. Yep. And wind can be something like, so wind creates a lot of charged um, energy. Yep. And so there is this theory that um, it would be easier for paranormal paranormal activity to occur up there, but um, there it, it can't be proven, but also... Um, there's the theory that with all the wind up there and then the stagnant energy as well, either way, um, it's too extreme. Like they they exist on too far ends of the extreme to be able to actually um, um, study it or what's like not monitor it but um, survey it in a way where they can get a good enough longer long enough period of time where they're actually able to capture something that says, oh, my God, look what we got mm. uh, because – usually the extremes are just too great and there's too Makes many sense. variables in yeah. those extremes in terms of what could be causing it. Yeah. So on the way, like on the ascent and on the descent, absolutely. But when yeah. it comes to the top and when it comes to the, the summit, yeah, it would probably be extremely rare. Yeah, that stands to reason. Yeah. I just find it fascinating all the you know, with the Sherpas and their beliefs and how many of them are there and haven't had that that rite of passage um, that their death sort of um, requires in order to reincarnate. And there's got to be many, many things going on there. Yeah. The Sherpas, because, um, like, with a lot of uh, Indigenous hauntings and you can sort of look to, like, I've, I've done so much... Um, viewing, watching, reading on Native American um, 
you know, mass burial grounds and and yeah. where, um, you know, whole towns have just been built over um, just bones and skulls and, and sacred sites, uh, sacred land, sacred sites. And um, they tend to not haunt, not that they don't, but it's a very generalised thing to see in terms of paranormal activity that um, Indigenous energy tends to be more elemental, like, or it appears to be elemental, it appears to be energetic as opposed to yeah. having an apparition or a single spirit haunting or visiting you. Makes sense it would, in some way, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah. It does because they're connected to the land yeah. and um, and and they also don't have a, there's a sense of um, like they they miss the ego part of it. Like they kind of they, they don't mm. care to haunt you or to scare you or to anger you. Yeah, they really just want what they want, and they can get angry themselves. But they, they, the way that they get angry is through weather, through um, land, you know, and through bad luck and things yep. like that. But it's yeah, not, the karma. you know, yeah, yeah, you, yeah, the karma. Exactly right. You don't see like a, a Native American Indian appear in front of you and just go get the fuck off my land and bury yeah. my like get my bones yeah. out. Like you never see that. You never hear about it either. You just you you hear the energy and you sense the energy, and so I would imagine the Sherpas would be the same. Yeah, but, you know, it's a good point. That's very good point. That... Yeah. Um. So so the prayer flags um are yeah. important are an important part of many sacred ceremonies for the people of Nepal and Tibet, and raising or planting of prayer flags has become huge. So prayer flags date back over 2,000 years and have roots in Tibet, Persia, China and India. The Tibetan word for prayer flags are da cho. Before Buddhism came to Tibet, prayer flags were used in healing ceremonies for the sick by the Bonpo shamans, pre-Buddhist spiritual teachers. It was believed that when placed strategically around the ailing person's body, the flags would bring internal balance back into the body. Prayer flags were also raised outside to bring harmony to the environment. When Buddhism came to the area of Tibet and Nepal, the use of prayer flags was continued and elaborated. The Tibetans added their own sacred symbols, mantras, prayers and blessings to them and believe that these messages are carried by the wind to whoever is meant to receive them. There are dozens of categories of prayer flags used today, but the most common carry messages of goodwill and fortune, protection, health and longevity, peace and harmony. Each mm -hmm. colour in a string of prayer flags represents a basic element, yellow for fire, green for water, red for fire, white for air and blue for space. Wow, I love that. That's why I wanted to include it. It was sort of yeah. like, you know, it goes with it, but it's beautiful. Yeah. I didn't realise um, how many layers are in those prayer flags and how yeah. many traditions it has sort of carried through. It's beautiful. Mm, I'm just sitting here looking at mine now, just, you yeah. know, um, they are very pretty. They bring me so much joy and mine are yep like run-of-the-mill, um, you know, probably made in Nepal, but yeah. like in a factory yeah. somewhere, I don't know, or in China or something. Yeah. But um, they do bring me so much. I've had them for years and I just love them. I Same. notice them nearly every time, I, every time I'm in my office. I love Amazing. that. I think I like the history and I like the morbidity of it. Just my, my mind was going to places of... It's a like lot. corpses, frozen corpses lying everywhere. And when you were talking about the, the spirits who would ask for food, like one of my greatest fears is zombies. Like oh, it, yeah. it, is, it is like a real fear for me. It's a, it's a hyperventilation, can't watch zombie movies, can't see zombies, can't, just can't. And that whole thing of spirits asking for food just made me imagine zombies on Mount Everest. And I was like, oh, oh no. Well, could be um, with the amount of frozen people up there. They could, you know, house a minor zombie apocalypse. Oh, God. Oh, God. I mean that in the most respectful way ever. <laughs> Sorry. No, you meant. Oh. Hey, yeah. we had a, um, a listener write in on the Instagram 
In response to our episode where we talked about Sean, one of our listeners who wrote in with the skull. Yes. And what does one do to not own a skull? Um, And so I have um, Amy's permission to share, and I think it's a really cool fact and update to just quickly add in for everyone because I was so intrigued. Yeah. So Amy looks right. Hi, ladies. Love, love, love your podcasts. I'm an embalmer. And this skull looks like it's had a cranial autopsy and most likely the rest of the body had a thoracic and abdominal autopsy, wherever it may be, rest in peace. What we do as embalmers is remove the cranial structures from the autopsy and peel back the arteria and posterior scalp flaps to reveal the calvarium. Calvarium? Sure. Once the cranial cavity is injected and treated, they would drill two small holes either side of the bone incision and pass wire through to secure the calvarium to the cranium. I don't use this method today as there are less invasive ways with clamps, etc. Can't wait to hear what you guys have for us next. Amy. So, of course, I was like, oh, my God, and I wrote back immediately because yeah. Thanks, that was Amy. just crazy. So mm-hmm. cool. And also, Amy, so then, get in touch. With your embalming yeah. stories. <laughs> I know, right? So yeah. that's what I said. I wrote, hey, curious, like a couple of days later, hey, curious as to why these procedures would have been done. Any unexpected death requires an autopsy unless the family contests it. I can't remember the dates of this particular skull in the podcast, but it could be an unexpected death that had an autopsy or maybe even an autopsy for other medical reasons like an anatomy research. Some hospitals perform an autopsy if the family agree, mainly for their own research and records. This is not a coronial matter. Embalming is done to preserve, delay decomposition and to better to better present the body. Some cultures require embalming and some don't. These days in Australia, it's not required by law to embalm unless specific circumstances arise, such as a body being repatriated or buried above ground. Regional areas don't usually embalm, whereas in the cities, the bigger funeral homes will embalm all their cases. Oh. Which I would imagine would be climatic of nature of some sort Mm. Um, and also like decomposition. Like if it's in rural areas, a decomposing corpse is not going to be as offensive as mass decomposing corpses in a city. I don't know. That's where my mind kind of went. Yeah, and maybe even skill set. And uh, if you don't have a local embalmer and you're going to have to travel the body, it's going to be harder to do that. Good point, Laura. Logistical. But, yeah, thanks, Amy. I loved it. I was just like, Oh, my gosh. Made my day when you sent that through. I was like, oh, my God. I love that listener. Thank you. The other thing that's going to make our listeners' day is that turns out she's psychic is coming back. It makes my day to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah. We're going back, back, baby. Gotcha. Back to yep. your ear holes. Yeah. So stay tuned for season three. Oh, wow. Wowzers. Great, great. Heck is so crazy. Yeah. Well, what else have we got to do? <laughs> <laughs> very true. Very, yeah. very true. So cool. we hope you're enjoying. Turns out it's haunted and turns out she's a witch and binged all of Turns Out She's Psychic again. Yeah. Um, and if you've got any stories, feel free to send them along to the email, tospsychic at gmail.com. And yeah. If you've got any things to include in our stories that we share, like Amy, please let us know. Like we love reading that stuff out and we like to get educated. It kind of, we just geek out on that sort of stuff. So go for it. And we've heard some people uh, sending in voice memos uh, for other podcasts. So that's always an option too. If you don't want to email it, you can do a voice memo and uh, send that through. Oh, yes. I love those. Do it, do it, do it. Do it, do it, do it, do it. All right, take care. Bye, Scary Cats. Got a spooky story you'd like us to share or a haunted location you'd like us to cover? Send us an email at tospsychic at gmail.com or follow us on Instagram at turnsout underscore it's haunted. We'd appreciate a follow, a share, a rating, a review, whatever floats your boat.
Till next time, sleep well, my scaredy cats.